2: Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I'll be talking about an incredibly timely and super interesting book called American Resistance from the Women's March to the Blue Wave. The author of the book is Dana Fisher, and the publisher is Columbia University Press. The book is just recently out, and I have the pleasure to have Dana on the phone right now. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing fine, Heath. How are you?
2: Good. You are caught up in in the um, the election and the Promotion of this book. Um, and so many, many people know about you at this point. But for those that don't, before we get to your interesting book, maybe you can just tell us a little bit about yourself. So, who are you?
1: Well, let's see. I'm a professor of sociology at the University of Maryland. I do work on kind of demo- democracy broadly defined, and I've been studying protests since the 1990s, which I guess dates me somewhat. And um, at the same time, I also do a lot of work on environmental politics. And one of the things that's really interesting about this book project is while it was started because of the women's March being called for the day after the inauguration in 2017, the environment actually shows up quite a bit in the resistance. And so it's been kind of interesting to watch uh, areas of research that I tend to do, you know, separately have, have really merged together in the past um, few years
2: yeah the the book is such a a merge of fields and disciplines and topics and and you cover so much. Um, but to start, maybe we can just talk about the title itself because this term that you use in the title is one that's um uh, used in in different ways to mean lots of different things and I want to know what what you, when you use the term what do, what do you mean? So what do you mean by resistance what is what is the definition in this book for that term?
1: That's a great question. i'm li- I'm glad you ask. And uh, no, this is not a Star Wars reference at all, but rather, um the resistance, the way I define it in the book is it's a counter movement to the Trump regime. So it involves people working individually and through organizations to challenge the Trump administration its policies. So it includes uh, people working as individual citizens or non-citizens through their professions as lawyers, scientists, artists, even professional athletes sometimes. It includes organizations that run the gamut in terms of their levels of professionalization. And I make very clear right in the beginning of the book that the violent fringe that stirred in response to white supremacist activities around the United States, which is called the Antifa, uh, is part of the resistance to the degree that it's targeting the Trump administration and its policies, but um, not if it's not specifically focused on the Trump agenda. And in contrast to other claims in the new york times and elsewhere anonymous people in the trump administration who are trying to temper the effects of the president or challenge the president specifically but not his agenda or his policy efforts are not part of the resistance what i think is really important here about this is that the definition is supposed to be as inclusive as possible but at the same time makes you know it tries to bracket very carefully the ways that we think about the resistance as being in response to the trump administration's policies and because it's a counter movement which and i talk about this as well it's like a tea party was a counter movement to the obama administration the obama regime it it actually as a counter movement is able to unify a number of different strands of activism that existed well before the election of donald trump and while I, as i talk about in the book it's a somewhat unlikely coalition or a, a fragile coalition of actors and interests, it works very well as a counter movement because these actors are unified with a con- common enemy that makes it possible for them to work together, even though they've historically competed for resources, energy, and attention.
2: So you look at the uh, resistance in in what you call the the streets, and but but also in congressional districts. Uh, why are these the right places uh, to study the work of the resistance and? And how did you, as a researcher, actually collect this data that serves as the basis for this book? What did you do?
1: So, so the the reason that I um that I connect the streets to the districts is that you know first of all, as I mentioned before, I'm a sociologist who has historically surveyed protesters. I've been at protests in Copenhagen, in Paris, in New York, in D.C. You know many, many, many times in the winter, in the summer, in the rain, in the snow, unfortunately. Um, And so when the Women's March was called, of course, I was, you know, I was going to go down there and see what happens. And I do it by collecting data with a research team. We take random samples of participants. Um, But one of the other things that I've done is, you know, I I study politics and I study the effectiveness of activism and social movements. And what became really clear is the role that organizations were playing in trying To channel the outrage and enthusiasm that we saw in the streets into other types of activism, specifically around electoral politics, which many scholars of social movements don't tend to consider. I mean, in a lot of ways, we tend to uh, bracket off social movements versus electoral politics. And here there was just a very clear connection. I mean, so much so that a lot of the organizations that I interviewed for the book. Actually, said to me, it's not even worth trying to change policy right now because of who we have in the House of Representatives and the Senate. Basically, if we want to make change, we need to change who's in those offices. And that's why we're focusing on the election. And that's exactly what they did. So that's the reason that I, I look in those two places. And I do it by collecting three different types of data. The data that I collect are these surveys that I did at all of the large scale protest events that happened. From the Women's March on the day after the inauguration in 2017, all the way through to the midterm election. So the last uh, protest where I collected data was the Families Belong Together event, which was at the end of um, June, on the 30th of June, I believe, 2018. And um, in all, there were seven large-scale events that took place, and at all of them, I collect random samples. And now I did it only in Washington, D.C., because I'm based here. And also because it historically was the case that, they, that when there were large marches, the goal was to come to New York, sorry, come to D.C. and not come to New York, come to D.C. and actually protest the powers that be, in this case, the president and the Congress. So it made a lot of sense. Now, protest has changed a lot in recent years so that we have these simultaneous events taking place all across the country, which, you know, I didn't really expect to see uh, so frequent. But I mean, every single one of the events where I collected data in D.C., there were sister, sibling, partner events taking place around the country. So so the data were collected in the streets of D.C. And then what I did, I mean, and I just think it's worth noting here that a lot of the people whom I surveyed in the streets in D.C. were people who had traveled from other places to come to D.C. to march in D.C. And then I also trace back those people into their districts by doing follow up surveys with them twice. I do it six months before the midterm elections and then two days after the midterm elections. I also follow up with them. So the data uh, set includes data collected from over 2,000 protesters at events, including um, I also collected data at the Women's March 2019, which is not part of the analysis for the main parts of the book, but it is part of the concluding chapter because I collected those data as well. So I have all of those people whom I follow up with two times. At the same time that I did these surveys, uh, I also did two waves of interviews with the so-called resistance groups, the leaders of those groups. And that included groups that were new and had come on the scene after the election, as well as some pre-existing groups that were redirecting their attention to focus on, you know, the resistance and what was going on with regard to you know, the contention after the election.
2: So I want to get to sort of what you discovered with these data that you collected. But but for those that, that didn't go to this first women's march immediately after the inauguration, I wonder if you could take us there for a moment. Um, you have been uh, studying and observing and attending uh, protests and marches uh, for a long time. Um What did you observe that was, was similar or, or strikingly different, uh, at this time in this March, uh, compared to ones that you've, you've witnessed and studied beforehand?
1: Okay. Um, so I mean, first of all, um, the March was called for January in Washington, DC. And while we don't have as cold weather as you do in New York and in other parts of the country, it's not a particularly delightful time to be standing out in the street in Washington, DC. So, When the march was originally called, I was like, you know, I didn't expect there would be such a huge turnout at all. I mean, the Women's March 2017 has now been estimated to be the largest individual protest that's ever happened in the United States. And granted, it didn't all happen in Washington, D.C., but um, hundreds of thousands of people were in Washington, D.C., so the turnout was estimated at 750,000 people. And it was a really gray kind of dark day but it was not cold enough to snow so there was there was that um and i think what was what was interesting for me was going down i mean before going down there were all of these videos and um other things that emerged of people on airplanes riding with their pussy hats on the airplanes coming to washington dc or on trains and that was really different from any other protests where I've collected data. I mean, I've collected data at large protests, but none as big as the Women's March before this. And, you know, when we got downtown, so I was there, as I mentioned, with a research team. And, you know, it was, you know, it's very standard. You go to there are specific entrances where you can enter into the protest area. And in some cases, there's security there. You go through and they had it all set up because there was the inauguration the day before. Um. But the thing that was really interesting was how crowded it got. And while I've collected data at marches all over, as I said before, it was the first time that I got, um, I kind of got not claustrophobic, but I had a bit of anxiety about being in such a big crowd, particularly because the Women's March, you know, the organizers were, I mean, I wouldn't say thrown together, but originally the Women's March was called by a number of different people and a number of different platforms, including this, this one grandmother in Hawaii who got a lot of attention for being one of the first people to say on Facebook, we need a women's march. And so there was this kind of interesting coalition put together of people organizing the event. And usually when you organize a march, you have a staging area where people line up and then they march. And there was no staging area for the women's march. So all the people were lining up where they were ostensibly supposed to march. And the problem is when you have hundreds of thousands of people standing in a really squished way in a place where you're going to march Somebody's going to get trampled. I mean, and there's research on crowd crush, which usually happens at at athletic events where there are lots of crowds of people and something bad happens, or or there's a rumor that something bad is happening. In this case, it was really interesting because there were all these people wondering what was going to happen. And I was going through the crowd sampling and I was in the back because I had sent my students up because I thought they might want to see Madonna, you know, sing. Um, The jumbotrons didn't work. So none of us in the back had any idea what was going on in the front. And since I was walking around collecting data on a clipboard, all these people kept coming up to me because they thought that I knew something because I had a clipboard. And it was funny because I said, you know, actually, I'm just collecting data, but um, but I don't see how we could possibly march. And they ended up not marching and creating this urban legend that they were too big to march, which is really not the case. They were too—they they had not planned to be able to march. So that's why they didn't march. And I'm not sure. I I'd, I'd never asked the organizers. All well, I have interviewed some of them about whether that decision was made because they thought it was going to be smaller or if they just didn't think ahead. But either way, that was interesting. I mean, the other remarkable thing to me about the women's March is the fact that while I was going through the event, I bumped it, but I bumped into people from all different stages of my life. I bumped into a woman I hadn't seen since high high school graduation, who I just bumped into as we were getting into the field. I bumped into my college boyfriend and his wife, who were there at the event? I bumped into a guy who I went to graduate school with, and he uh, he left uh, the social sciences and now works in politics. He was there, and I bumped into a bunch of people from um, my career as an academic who were, you know, professors from around the tri-state area. But that was also really interesting because I usually a, a march I might see one or two people usually if I'm in you know the locality who are there, but people had come in from all over, so people from all over my life showed up as well.
2: Now, one of the things that makes this study of this social movement different than previous and you, you alluded to it earlier, is and you described this in the book, is, is treating this, this march not as the end point of the social movement, which has often kind of been the, the approach uh, uh, of, of previous social movements, but really as a start. Um, when, you, when you did your survey work, when you interviewed people, are there things? That you discovered in the data that reinforced that that was the right way to think about this social movement and think about this book as a starting point? Were people aware of that, that this was not the, this was not the culmination of their work, but actually the beginning of something? Uh, did that show up in what you observed in the data?
1: I have to tell you that I don't think – I mean, first of all, the, 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 this idea about how these large-scale protests are the beginning of activism for people and not uh, the end point or the goal – was originally uh, pointed out to me by a reviewer who reviewed an early version of the manuscript. So, no, it did not show up to me. I mean, originally, I actually planned on going out. Uh, I was working with two colleagues of mine who work on issues related to race at the University of Maryland. And it was supposed to be a one off. You know, I was really interested to see if all these people were going to come out because of the climate um, issues and women's issues that had been, you know, discussed quite a bit in the campaign they were interested in whether Black Lives Matter would show up, um, if the immigration movement would show up. So we had this theory that you'd see all these different kind of interest areas that had been burned by the elections showing up in the streets, but it was never intended to be a book project. In fact, it didn't become a book project probably until late spring after the March for Science and the People's Climate March also happened. So so even though, you know, if I had been prescient, maybe I would have guessed that, I just thought this was this uh, this opportunity for some sort of collective mourning for the country, right? For all the people who had voted. I mean, and, and the data showed me you know, even though President Trump had tweeted from wherever he was golfing at the time on the day of the women's March that uh, people should stop you know whining in the streets and start voting. I mean, the people in the streets voted. ninety four percent of them voted for Hillary Clinton. They just didn't vote for him. So that's why people came out in the streets. So I really thought maybe I I didn't think for a second that we would have this spark of a new, you know, wave of contention and that collective action was going to pick up from there. Uh, And I really think it was this kind of increasing level of outrage that started during the campaign with some of the horrible things that were said and exposed and came out during the campaign. And then it just built from there, you know. Only a small number of days after the women's march, the first travel ban was announced. And so all these people who had just gotten home and put their pussy hats away, all of a sudden were you know, marching over to airports to protest the travel ban and to welcome people from other countries into our country who had been harassed, you know, trying to get back in.
2: So the central part of the book is the, is what happens between these two different uh, uh, political events in, in a way. And and so, it's a study of evolution. Uh, I wonder if you can uh, talk a little bit about uh, what changed in the tactics and the the messages and and the the agenda uh, of the American resistance over this time period? What happens uh, internally and and to what we can observe uh, over the the months between uh, two thousand uh, January two thousand and seventeen and and the uh, the election in November two thousand and eighteen.
1: Well, one of the things that changes is I think we see, I mean, so first of all, I think that the fact that we see so many large scale marches happening in such a short, truncated period of time is remarkable. And moreover, what's what's even more remarkable about this and noteworthy in comparison to say another period of heightened contention, like, you know, during the civil rights era is these are marches where each one of their fo- you know, main focus was a different subject, right? The only two that were the same, were there were two women's marches in the sample. But these are all large scale marches around you know, science, climate change, racial justice, march for our lives against gun violence, family belonging together against family separation. And so what I thought was you know, really interesting initially is like, oh, look at all these different people coming out. But what the data tell us, and this is the story that evolves over time, is, you know, at the women's march, the first women's march, a third of the people in the crowd had never participated in a protest before. And what was noteworthy was at every event that number went down, I thought, oh, I guess new people aren't joining the movement anymore. But then I looked at the data around persistence is what I ended up calling it. Laurie and Jazzy and I published a paper on this in Sociological Forum called Understanding Persistence and the Resistance, where we specifically look at this measure of repeat participants, right? And we basically find that while the number of first-timers goes down, Except for at the March for Science, which was in April 2017, where 46% of the people at the March for Science reported attending the Women's March 2017, at every one of these events besides that, it was a 70% or more of the people in the crowd said they participated in the Women's March. So we see this interesting agglomeration of progressive people who are coming out again and again around different issues. And as a result... One of the other things that we look at is we look at the motivations across the people who are participating in the resistance, and um, we see we don't see patterns of motivations, but we do see clusters of motivations emerging that are really interesting so that it's not just that people come out because of the main issue that's the draw. Like 97% of the people at the People's Climate March came out because of the environment, as exactly you would expect, right? But 47% of them came out because of equality, and 43% of them said they came out because of peace. And uh, 56% of them said that they came out because of Donald Trump himself. And so we see these motivations over time turning out, you know, changing in terms of patterns, but also staying relatively high so that people are not just there to protest one specific issue. So I think that's really different in a lot of ways and that's the story that evolves is that these are progressive people who care about a lot of different issues who are willing to march but then also, you know, I track their civic engagement in the streets before I start tracking what they might have done back in their districts and these people are highly civically engaged even when they started. So that was another thing that was, you know, somewhat surprising. I mean, if we look at the literature that exists on the history of protests and activism, Historically the expectation is that people participate in protests when they feel like there's no other option. When they have, you know, limited access to power and they really want to, you know, they still need to get their voices heard, so they march in the streets. But these people were not just marching in the streets. They were contacting their contacting their elected officials, they were going to town hall meetings, they were contacting the media. And then, you know, as we got closer to the election, they were doing a whole bunch of other things specifically around the election in their communities and, and in congressional districts.
2: And what do you attribute this to? Is, is this the, the magnitude of the Trump victory and ultimately the Trump administration? Or is this uh, something that has to do with the, the effectiveness of, of the tactics that those within the, the, the social movement were using to maintain enthusiasm, persistence over time? It's obviously some combination. But where do you put that balance between at least those two factors? So the two factors being the, uh, the tactics, the the pressure. Yeah. Either is it, is this just because sort of the, the Trump phenomena was so overwhelming that it drove people to be more active maybe than they would be in the past or, or have the social movement leaders learned things from the past, uh, maybe even from the tea party that, that were so effective, maybe unusually effective, uh, to keep people enthusiastic, um, Those are two different two different ways to explain this persistence over time,
1: right? I mean, well, so I think that actually it's uh, as much as I think the organizations have been doing a lot of really interesting and innovative um, have taken a lot of interesting and innovative tactics to get people involved and keep them involved. I actually do not think that the organizations play a big role in turning people out and keeping them engaged. In fact, I think that um, Donald Trump is doing much more of the work here for getting people engaged and keeping them engaged. Because, you know, as I talk about in the first chapter of the book, the resistance is the product of three uh, very, you know, important and interrelated characteristics. It's it's the response to an out-of-touch Democratic Party that hasn't invested much in local infrastructure in way too long. It's uh, the response um, to conservative donors using dark money in ways that basically try to bypass equality and, you know, representation. And then finally, it's uh, the response to a president who not only shows no interest in compromise, but who also, you know, constantly is fanning the flames of outrage, right? And I think that, you know, so many times during the period of doing this research, I talked to leaders of, of resistance groups who said to me, Everybody's sick of marching on Washington. Nobody's marching on Washington anymore. I mean, and we can actually see this by, if you look, I mean, granted, the coalitions are somewhat similar, but the leaders of these different protests are almost always new groups have, that haven't existed before and haven't worked before on a protest because all of a sudden, everybody's, you know, outraged about something else and we need we need another march. And I think that that really um, is, you know, it's, you know the response of this collective outrage that is pushing for people to call to do something to for people to get to get involved and to stay involved and to work for there to be organizations that can help to connect them. Uh, what I think is kind of interesting is the organizations once they do emerge have benefited by what I talk about a lot in the book, which is distributed organizing, which is uh, the capacity of the groups to use digital tools to, to connect people in innovative ways and get them involved, not just in protesting, for example, but also in doing work in their communities or in other communities. They're doing a lot of that as well.
2: This, this super interesting book with so much more in it um, that we're not even going to be able to get to is titled American Resistance from the Women's March to the Blue Wave. The book is published by Columbia University Press And the author who you've been hearing from is Dana Fisher. Dana, thank you very much for your time today.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Heath.